On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Today is April the 24th. It's the anniversary of the birth of one of the world's most famous propagandists, uh, although not necessarily a successful one. Um, his government name was William Joyce, but he'd be better known to most of us as Lord Haw Haw. Uh, he was just one clog in a much bigger machine of uh, propaganda radio around the World War II era aimed at these islands. Um, his station or his whole setup was called Ireland Redaktion. Uh, that's me getting some use out of my degree there from UCD in 2009. Um, it was certainly a bold attempt at utilising the power of radio. But was anyone actually listening? Well, Donald Fallon has taken off his uh, his Pimsleur, his, his, his um, part of phone. What are they called? You know, those those uh, teach yourself language things? What do they used to be called? Everyone uses uh, Duolingo. No, Joe, yeah. Well, Joe, there's me. Uh, I was, pop stars, I was Duolingo. <laughs> coming at it with my 1990s thing. What was the, like, not Parlophone. What was the, uh, uh, Linguaphone. Those are the ones. Um, you've taken off your headphones anyway to, to come back and, and talk to us about all of this. Um, whatever about William Joyce's background, um, we, it's fair to say, actually, we weren't his target audience in the no, middle of the war. No, the name William Joyce or Lord Ha Ha is kind of familiar. And if people don't know the name, they definitely know the cry, which was Germany Calling, Germany Calling, which you would begin uh, his broadcasts. But those broadcasts, to be honest, weren't really aimed at us. They were aimed primarily at British ears. Mm. Joyce, you know, born on this day in, in 1906. I think he became one of the most familiar voices of the war in his own weird way. And you, you know you're kind of made as a broadcaster when you're being parodied. And that was happening yeah. in his lifetime mm. that you know, the British were kind of mocking him. And, you know, while listening to his broadcasts in Britain was officially discouraged, it wasn't illegal outright. So... It's been estimated there were 6 million regular listeners to Lord Ha Ha and 18 million occasional listeners in Britain. Wow. Not bad figures. You no. know? <laughs> You'd be happy enough for them yeah. tuning in to hear Lord Ha Ha's broadcasts. But I suppose what we're looking at today, you know, it made sense, I suppose, that the Nazis would be broadcasting propaganda into Britain. They were at mm. war with Britain. This tiny little island, why would you do it here? Uh, and yet then a uniquely Irish station was born and it was kind of specifically aimed at Irish society. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, what was broadcast for, for British ears differed significantly from what would ultimately be broadcast. I suppose with the aim of winning, they might say, Irish hearts and minds. Mm. And the story of this radio station, it's, it's a really remarkable tale because just how few Irish people are actually involved. You know, they couldn't, they <laughs> yeah. couldn't find Irish people for this, you know, Irish yeah. propaganda uh, radio station. So, I mean, what we find is German architects, some of whom have not only been to Ireland, but who were familiar even with the Gwaeltacht, you know, people who had studied linguistics in the years before the rise of mm. Nazi Germany uh, and who wanted to broadcast Irish language content uh, into Irish homes well. during the war. And this was one of 54 radio stations aimed at international ears. The Rund Funkhaus in Berlin was like this bizarre propaganda factory pumping out radio mm. stations aimed at different uh, nationalities. But a unique broadcasting product to try and shape political discourse, you know, in yeah. in many countries. Sort of a BBC World Service of his day, but maybe with a slightly different uh, intention uh, for its listenership. Uh, and so the message then in every country, like you say, if they're pumping out 54 of these things, the message then is, uh, is very uniquely tweaked or cultivated towards each audience, depending on what's actually happening there on the ground. In some countries, you want to stir kind of racial tensions. You know, it, if it's a very diverse society, if it has a significant Jewish population. In some countries, you're kind of creating anti-Soviet feeling, you know, especially if there's a strong left in a country. Those guys take money from the Soviets, don't mm -hmm. trust them. Okay. And then in some cases, there's like hyper-local inspirations for trying to broadcast into a society. So the Irish station would encourage listeners every night at the end, Quinnigy for no drugged. Keep your neutrality. Isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> yeah. Imagine those words being yeah, yeah. beamed from Berlin yeah. into, into Irish homes. Yeah. And the logic was that a neutral Ireland, Ireland out of the war, 
was just as good, I suppose, as an ally in some ways but he, he, uh, to Germany on he, Britain's doorstep. Even the idea of Quinnigy Vernodrox maybe being said with a slightly German tinge in the accent, <laughs> I just, I, I'm not even going to try and do it now on air, but I, I'm very tickled by, by how it might have sounded. Um, at the heart of all of this then are, uh, as you mentioned, two Germans who um, not only did New Ireland fairly well, but actually were frequent visitors uh, to the Gwaeltox. <laughs> Which is extraordinary, isn't it? Ha- Hans Hartmann and Ludwig Mulhausen were, were no strangers to the island of Ireland. They'd been here quite a lot. And David O'Donoghue, who's the, the kind of foremost authority on this very weird story, the connections of these two nations in a time of war, he describes them and their station as Hitler's Irish voices. Oh. But they're academics. They're, they're well-known in Celtic studies circles. They'd been on research visits to the Gwaeltocht in the, in the 1920s, the 1930s. And bizarrely, this made them both kind of convinced of the need to not only broadcast specifically into Ireland, but use the native language because, yeah, it might be a minority language, but the people you're connecting to, they felt, would be, you know, of a more nationalistic mindset. Mm, so, yeah. you know, if, we, if we're only going for this small section of the Irish population, let's go for them uh, really well. Yeah. To be honest, though, w- was there an audience to be captured? I mean, Mark Hall and, and Vera Moynes, who are two great historians of the war, mm. they write that at the war's outbreak, there was only 166,275 Irish homes with radio licences. I found that mad. That's it's, one in... Yeah. One in every 17 people. I was just going to say, because I'm sure that I remembered a couple of years ago for the centenary of the rising, that being announced as being the birth of Irish radio, because it was the first time there was ever a radio signal broadcast from Ireland. Someone literally across the street from the GPO saying, right, Ireland Ireland is independent now. Here we are. You know, and this is where you'll tune in for the hit parade. Um, so like this, so if that was only 1916 and there was no one around to listen to it, I was going to say then in, in the 1930s or, or coming up to the Second World War, there really wouldn't have been much of an audience or much of a, a you know a, a, a threshold or a body, a stock of, of radio kits knocking around in Ireland. Yeah, well, I mean, one, one in every 17 with a radio licence. How many people had radio and didn't have a radio licence would, would be a good question too. But, you know, most of the sets that were registered were in Dublin or they were in other Irish, you know, urban centres. So... Like the target Irish-speaking areas that these guys were looking at in in, in Connacht, you know, in Connemara and Donegal, yeah. there were very, very, very few. So, you know, it's it's surprising to me actually when you think of the, the history of Irish radio as being a slower development, perhaps than, yeah. than you may have first thought. Um, they gather then this curious team, um, often more German than Irish, and they get down to work. Um, if you're broadcasting a radio station to a country that doesn't have very many radios or radio stations of its own what sort of stuff do you put on air? Yeah that's a great question isn't it so they, they put a team together uh, this great character John Francis O'Reilly from County Clare he had done everything he'd worked every odd job he could across the continent of Europe didn't like anything and always moved on uh, his father was part of the RIC party who'd arrested Roger Casement on Banna Strand in, in 1916, wow. which was Germany's last great intervention in Irish <laughs> politics uh, before this. But, you know, as one historian of the station puts it, this guy O'Reilly, he questioned Hartman's programming choices, refused to read news items that he considered boring and criticised the music played as having no Irish basis. So, you know, not, not the great... Not the best DJ you could hope for on, on, on a station like this. But the formula of the station, basically, what they're doing is they're utilising the kind of Irish collective memory. I mean, this is the late 30s, early 40s. So the War of Independence, you're kind of one generation removed from it, remember. And they're kind of trying to encourage anti-British sentiment. Mm. So they're saying like, you know, Winston Churchill, this great... Uh, politician of morality today. He sent the black and tans to Ireland. You know, all these folk tales of the Great Famine as well. Mm. And then just weird radio, like really odd stuff, like their 
they read the diaries of Wolf Tone on the radio. <laughs> and Irish <laughs> Irish military wow, intelligence yeah. and um, that British military intelligence are saying there's something not quite right about this. This programming is a bit too bizarre. Mm. And they believed quite rightly that that was the perfect kind of thing to hide coded messages. Oh, uh, so so within. it was sort of some sort of code incognito that, it, that you, you'd you'd bury your messaging inside what sounded like uh, more more straightforward stuff. Very pretty innocuous okay. historical sources. Yeah. But, you know, at the core of it, there was there was something else being said. So poor people in in you know in G two and army military intelligence and in the British military intelligence had to listen to Wolf Tone's diaries <laughs> read endlessly on this Berlin <laughs> radio station. Um, if you ever want to fall down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, by the way, look up numbers stations. They are fascinating. Mm. I, I'm not going to spoil it now, but that the, there's lots of stuff like that. I can't imagine someone just having to sit down for hours and hours and hours a day listening to those things. Um, so broadcasting then Oscuelga, uh, particularly given that we didn't do much of it ourselves in Ireland, was a fairly novel idea. Um, but in time then, they, they changed their approach a little bit. That's a very good point. I hadn't even thought of that. There was probably more Irish language radio coming out of Berlin than there was Dublin at some <laughs> yeah, points in the yeah. war. But you know, the initial idea, yeah, by, uh, broadcast entirely Oscuelga. As the war progresses, the content becomes kind of increasingly bilingual. And I think the influence for that was Dr. Adam. Adolf Marr, who was uh, an archaeologist, director of the National Museum of Ireland in the 1930s, uh, broadly popular man in Dublin society yeah. in the 30s, but you know a very committed fascist. And when the war breaks out, he's back in 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 Germany. He's on leave of absence from his Dublin gig in the National Museum, which is extraordinary. Yeah. And he kind of, I think, reshapes this radio station in, in, in a big way. Despite not being Irish, he worked in Dublin. He had an intimate knowledge of, of the country, its culture, uh, its people. So what you begin to see is more and more English language mm. content, uh, very diverse voices on the radio station. Francis Stewart, the writer, uh, bizarrely, he describes himself as an admirer of both the Nazis and the Soviet system. <laughs> okay. Anything outside the norm is good, he, yeah. he, he believes. He goes on St. Patrick's Day in 1942, this new voice on the airwaves, and he tells listeners, Ireland belongs to Europe and England does not. You know, this idea that Ireland is a great kind of European uh, civilization, so is, so is Germany. But mm. that involvement in that radio station would really dog Francis Stewart the writer for the rest of his life. It, yeah. it was a scandal that, that never left him. Well, I suppose uh, ever professing before 1939 to being an admirer of the Nazis, then you make yourself a hostage to fortune based on, on what comes afterwards. Um, so we know then that the intelligence lads are listening in because they have to listen to poor old Wolftone's diaries being recited over and over and over again. Um, was anyone else actually listening? Yeah, if anyone who wasn't being paid to listen was listening uh, is another question entirely. <laughs> okay. And there, there is some rare correspondence from people uh, bringing the station to the notice of the authorities in its earliest okay. days. People, people in the Gwaeltox were kind of, what is this? And it was very poor, remember. I mean, it wasn't like today. You can listen to any radio station in the world on your phone at pretty good quality. Yeah. I mean, this was a different time entirely. So this is not only a strange thing that it's broadcasting German propaganda, Oskwelge, but it sounds very bad, you know, as it's coming through. Anyone that can, that can pick it up. So it didn't really achieve anything on the scale of William Joyce in Britain, uh, where he became this, as I said at the beginning, kind of parodied voice. And I think millions of people listened to William Joyce out of curiosity uh, and for entertainment value. Mm. There was something about it that was just so, so bizarre. But I think what is every bit as interesting as as the Germans trying to broadcast propaganda Oskwelga for Irish ears in Ireland is the story of how they used Irish history in Germany okay. for a German audience. So over there, they used the big screen and they had movies like Mein Leben für Ireland, My Life for Ireland, 
which was a 1941 right. film about you know Irish patriots yeah. and and big bad black and tans and stuff like that. So basically, it, it, this kind of real the my enemy's enemy is my friend that are like these guys don't like the Brits either. So then we're, totally. let's get on their side. Totally. So stories of kind of British cruelties, Irish resistance to it. That was useful in you know presenting Germany's wartime opponent to Germans yeah. as a as a historic aggressor. Yeah. But I think those films aimed at you know German people using Irish history. I think they were a lot more successful, to be honest, than Irish language broadcasts into Ireland. Uh, yeah, certainly suspect so. Actually, this is kind of a chilling. Uh, modern day kind of harrowing idea of the aggressing power trying to use propaganda to pre- present the other side as being the ones who really need taking out oh, totally, you know, it's a very, totally. very salient yeah. thing right now Russia today is on a loop of yeah. documentaries yeah. about the Ukraine um, it is worth remembering that this wasn't the only radio station from abroad that you could pick up in Ireland in the course of the war though I found this really interesting Claire Wales who wrote the, the, the neutral island the history of Ireland during the second world war she makes point that there was a real battle going on, you know, for influence on the airwaves. She oh. says the BBC was transmitting from London and Belfast, Ireland. Oh, I forget that it's broadcast from Belfast. From as Belfast well, so yeah, during yeah. the war, Ireland, Redaction. Have I made a hame yes, of that no, from no, Berlin? CBC, NBC, Vatican Radio. She writes the airwaves over Ireland were an ideological battleground. Radio Air and BBC led the field, but it's impossible to estimate with any accuracy how many people were listening in and to what. And I love the last line. The main difficulty as the war progressed was maintaining the technical means to listen to anything at all. Uh, I'm really fascinated by that because, the, you know, this idea and it's a discussion that we're having again now in society that Ireland being neutral, but that sort of then being a battleground for for the, the, the clashing views of others and that actually that our airwaves were, were this kind of this contested area uh, as far back as the, the 1930s. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, all of that uh, prompted by today being the birthday of William Joyce, Lord Haw Haw, uh, and all brought to you as ever uh, with such brilliant gusto by Donald Fallon, who is the author of the Community Books and of Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia, a story about the social history of our capital city. He's also the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast, which is about the history of Dublin through the rare old and possibly more modern times too as well On the Record with Gavin Riley Brought to you by PwC Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk